This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, here on WKXL AM and FM. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. If you find our podcast, please subscribe, like us, and tell your friends. You can always visit our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Well, the last 10 years have seen a breathtaking pace of technological innovation in every area of our economy and society. These days, anyone on earth with access to a mobile phone or laptop computer and the connection to the internet can access almost the entire sum total of human knowledge with the click of a button. American high-tech companies are creating whole new industries along with millions of jobs and millions of dollars. At the same time, all of this new innovation brings complicated questions about privacy, security, economic balance, and government regulation. One of America's undisputed leaders in navigating all of these issues is our guest today, Rob Atkinson. He's the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, the ITIF. He's, uh, the foundation is recognized as the world's top think tank for science and technology policy. The New Republic has named Rob uh, one of the three most important thinkers about innovation. He's the author of many books, uh, numerous articles. He's a highly respected speaker. He's a leader on countless government boards and councils. He's testified more than 30 times before the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, and he appears frequently on news and public affairs programs such as the BBC, CNBC, CNN, Fox News. You get it, folks. All the places where anybody needs to talk about innovation and technology, they turn to Rob Atkinson. Rob, welcome to Beyond Politics. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. That was really a very, a very great introduction. I couldn't have done it better myself. Well, that's why we're hosting this podcast, because we hope that with your expertise, you're going to give us answers to some really burning questions. And, and one of them, let's start off with a, with a hot topic, uh, pun intended. A, a new UN study on the effects of global warming warns of a code red for humanity. Uh, the report says Earth's climate is getting so hot that temperatures in about a decade will probably blow past a level of warning that world leaders have sought to prevent and scientists and others have been warning of for decades. You wrote recently that since limiting growth is not realistic, the only way out of this looming disaster is through innovation. What are you thinking about? And, and, and can we innovate our way out of the climate crisis? Well, there's certainly, that's an important question. <clears throat> Ultimately, we can. Uh, it's a question of how much we want to pay. But there's a lot of folks out there now in the climate debate who are actually saying things like, well, the only way to solve the climate crisis is for us to all consume less. And first of all, that's 
wrong. Um, we're just with population growth alone, we're, we're all going to consume more, <clears throat> the world will consume more. And are they really telling people in countries like India that have about 15% of our per capita income, oh, we're sorry, you're going to have to be poor the rest of your lives and your kids' lives? I hope that's not what they're saying. No, nobody, no, nobody who votes uh, is going to vote for lowering their standard of living. So this whole sort of degrowth or no growth position is just is just nonsense. We're going to have a bigger economy just because we're the economies grow and we get more people. The real question is, can you decarbonize most, if not all, of what we do? And the only way to really do that uh, politically is to be able to make it cheaper. You know, I'm I, I ride my bike to work. I mean, I'm not bragging, and I ride my bike to work because I like it but it also helps the climate. And I also have all my electricity from wind energy, but I pay a premium for that. Not a big premium, but it's a premium. You know what percentage of Americans who have the opportunity to pay for wind energy, but don't, or do, I should say, about 2%. So if, if we can make clean technology better, you know, better nuclear power, better solar, better batteries, for frankly, carbon capture. Uh, you know, we're going to have to be taking carbon out of the air. We're going to have to figure out a way to do it pretty cheaply. That's really the only way we're going to solve climate change. And the sooner people realize that, the better. Let me let me follow up for a moment, because um, I, I live in a, a small community that um, is uh, that wants to be conscious about climate change. And I'm wondering whether or not uh, people who are tagged as being uh, anti-growth are really um, uh, just conflating conscious capitalism with a rampant capitalism of greed that leads to uh, climate change and the destruction of the planet. Um, perhaps, perhaps those people who are tagged as anti-growth really are only after a conscious capitalism which recognizes climate change and uses technology and innovation to convert our uh, consumer economy in which we have 47 different brands of mayonnaise on the shelves um, to, to something that uh, pays more attention to the economy, to, to, to the uh, uh, environment through innovation and technology. Do you think people are conflating con that, that kind of consciousness with um, being tagged anti-growth? Well, I can't speak for individuals in, in, a, in a small town that you live in, Paul, probably. But there are people who are leading this movement. You go to all these various websites and these organizations that explicitly say, we need to stop driving. We need to cut our incomes. And I, my response to all of them on Twitter is, um, have you gotten rid of your car? Uh, have you donated half of your salary to something, you know, environmentally conscious? The answer is, of course not. You know, and then when you talk about capital, I don't think it's capitalism that, that's the problem. I think, in fact, if you look at many, many corporations like Microsoft, for example, you know, they, they all are sort of stepping over themselves to, to say who's going to be going, you know, carbon neutral first. They see it as, as good business. The real issue is if you ask American voters, hey, would you support a carbon tax? No way. No way. 
most people say, I don't want to pay anymore. And I'm not knocking that. I get that. People are strapped. Okay, whatever. But one area where I do think the people in your town, plus everybody else, should be able to get together and say, hey, why don't we spend more money on science and research and development? You know, imagine if we could get batteries that are three or four times better than the batteries we have today. Then we don't talk about range anxiety in, in, in electric vehicles. We don't talk about them have costing more because they do. Then, you know, I'd buy an electric car at that point. I don't have a I don't need an electric car because I don't drive hardly at all. But my point is, I think most people, regardless of their positions, should be able to get around an agenda of let's innovate faster to get clean technology out in the marketplace. Well, speaking of spending more public resources on scientific research and development, the summer of 2021 was in many ways the summer of infrastructure. It's been a longstanding Washington joke that we were going to have infrastructure week. We had about 16 infrastructure weeks culminating in the infrastructure week in the Senate. And part of that debate in Washington was what is and what is not infrastructure and how much do we spend on it? And a big piece of that discussion was around whether federal support for scientific research and development is infrastructure and whether we're actually investing enough in it. So Rob, is it and are we? Yes, no. It is infrastructure. It's 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 knowledge infrastructure. It's you, you, there's there's many many things that one cannot do as a company or an organization without better technical knowledge, technical breakthroughs that you build on that companies and other inventors build on. So it's definitely infrastructure. We're not spending enough on it or investing enough. The United States now spends as much on federal support for research and development as we did before the Russians launched Sputnik. And as everybody who's a listener knows, you know, Sputnik was a wake up call. We've got to beat the Russians. And so we invested an enormous amount. In the 1960s, we were spending more on research and development, just the federal government alone than every other country, business and government combined. Uh, and we just let that slide because nobody wants to invest more. The Republicans, as a broad general rule, want smaller government. The Democrats, as a broad general rule, they want to spend money on um, social policy. And so R&D has been kind of a stepchild. Now, the good news is that you alluded to the infrastructure bill. There's also another Senate bill that was very important called USICA, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, that did ramp up uh, monies for uh, NSF and other R&D. Could have done more. It should have done more, in my opinion. But still, it was a big deal. And it's and if it goes through the House and gets signed by the president, it will be a big deal. So we we just recently had a new round of census data emerge that confirms it confirms something you've been saying for a while, which is that most of our economic and population growth is happening in what we'll, let's call them superstar metropolitan areas. And that's creating a massive growing gap between um, these urban innovation hotspots and everywhere else. Um, so there are, of course, when you consider uh, those that imbalance, um, massive economic, political, societal implications um, in, in those imbalances. You've said the nation needs a major push to counter those dynamics. Um, what do you mean? What do we need to do? What does countering those imbalances look like? Is it, is it enough to recognize that rural areas have been left behind and they need broadband? Is that enough? Um, what, what, else, what else do we need? 
Well, it's 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 a complicated question because there are different types of places that have been left behind. There are the sort of the buggy whip places that have been left behind. They, they might have had a good mine and the mine ran out and there's really no purpose for the place anymore. You shouldn't be propping up places like that. But then there are other places that have potential. They've come on hard times, largely because the industries that were their core of their economy fell on hard times. But what the U.S. government, the federal government used to do is we had a system of programs that would help places like that. If we spent what we spent in 1979 as a share of our economy in economic development to help lagging regions and communities, we'd be putting $50 billion a year in. You know how much we put in now? $200 million. Wow. So- We've just abandoned places. I mean, I, my wife and I and my daughter, we drove uh, out to Michigan to visit our relatives. And we spent some time in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, some parts of Pennsylvania. There are a lot of lagging places there and places that, you know, still have some hope. You could put manufacturing there or other places like that. But specifically to that tech here, to tech idea, ITIF came out with a proposal to create for the federal government to fund places for 10 years to be self-sustaining technology hubs. Now we're not talking about a little town with no university. We're talking about places maybe like Pittsburgh or Birmingham, Alabama or St. Louis that have pretty good universities. They've got some tech jobs, but tech companies don't wanna locate there because of the chicken or egg thing. Well, can we get enough workers? Are there other tech companies there? But if you could get these places over the hump, you know, we believe that you'd see a lot of a lot of advanced technology jobs in these places and not just in the Bostons or the Silicon Valleys of the world. Uh, you know, one last quick thing. My son is a software programmer in Silicon Valley. He just got a job last year and he pays more for his one. It's not even a one bedroom. It's a studio apartment. He pays more for his studio apartment than I pay for my mortgage in Bethesda, Maryland. Wow. Wow. So let me let me let me ask you this. Um, it it I hear you that the federal government isn't doing what it used to do what it could do and what it should do in terms of investing in correcting the imbalances or or helping to to uh, reinvigorate uh, places that have been um, uh, left behind um, it, the what what's the what's the what's the what's the stopper why what what aren't the politicians in Washington or the folks even in those areas who are trying to get the ears of their people in Washington, what's what's missing? What's the what's the what's the missing link in people understanding that the only way through this is or forward is through this and that we've got to address that in order to to work on the fundamental um, inequality uh, and economic imbalances that we're seeing in our economy? So I, I couldn't agree with you more. There are many <clears throat> different types of inequalities. One of them is spatial. If you're born in a place that's not doing as well, it's going to be harder for you and your family to succeed. Not impossible, but harder. I put the blame pretty squarely on one profession, and that's the economics profession. Prior to 1979, there was a consensus among many economists, or in fact, most economists, that it was appropriate for the federal government to help places do well economically. But then with the rise of what you could call neoclassical or more, I don't know, what basically what most economists are today, there was a very seminal uh, national urban and regional planning commission that Jimmy Carter set up. And what, that, what those economists said was, it's dumb and stupid and 
you're inefficient to help places just give people bus tickets and have them move. And that really set the stage. And so most economists today would say, well, if a place is declining, it's supposed to decline. The market has said so. Let the people move and become a, you know, a Walmart worker in or a Safeway grocery store worker in San Francisco. Give them a bus ticket. And to me, that was the most arrogant. I mean, those were all people who moved away from their hometowns, went and got their PhDs, move around all the time because they're in this elite professional class where you can do that well. I think that was a big, big part of the problem. And, and it's only recently that, that that dominant narrative has been seen people push back on it. I mean, people like Larry Summers now have begun to realize that even Larry was wrong on that and that maybe we do need a, a little bit more focus on places and regions. So just one one more to yeah because you're what you say is fascinating it never occurred to me uh, maybe it did to Matt because he's a lot smarter than I am but it never occurred to me that at the root of this is a profession like economics which which has an outsized impact on uh, political thinking and political will does it come down to a the 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 basic uh, uh, question in American political life about the role of government? And are you talking about um, the kind of Republican small government idea taking root in the economics profession? And only now are we beginning to see some uh, re renovation of the idea that government has a role to, has a, has a si significant role to play that it's not just handouts, it's it's hand ups and it's planning for our future. And is that is that uh, is that why, uh, for example, Republican senators went along with a trillion dollar infrastructure bill? Are we beginning to see a renaissance in American thinking about what uh, the role of government should and can be? I think we are. Um... This was not so much the Republicans influencing the economists. It was actually the economists influencing the Republicans. Aha. Famous, famous uh, statement by, by Richard Nixon in 1972. We are all Keynesians now, meaning John Maynard Keynes, traditional economics. By 79, no Republican would say that. But you're absolutely right, I believe. Republicans and, and Democrats, they're willing to spend money if it goes to their own district. I mean, they're rational. That's what people do. That's what politicians do. But what's different today, there's a real sense that something has gone wrong in the country, that we've let these inequalities get too big, uh, whether it's income inequality with you know people who have just you know billions and billions of dollars need to pay higher taxes, or whether it's spatial inequality. And finally, a recognition that you can only go so far on that without really damaging the political economy and the, and the sort of the fabric of the country. So I think people are Republicans and Democrats both are recognizing that. Now, the big challenge is, is money, although Democrats don't seem to have a worry about money. But what's striking is if you look at that three trillion dollar initiative, very little of it is focused on regional and community development. 
So they're willing to spend a boatload of money, but not very much in this space, which to me is really interesting and troubling. So we need a bipartisan view that if, yeah, there is a role for government, to, as you say, to hand up. I mean, we shouldn't be helping places that just simply have no chance. They're, they cannot survive because their fundamentals are not good enough. But there are many, many places in America where you can revive communities and get them back on their feet again. And that's what we should be doing. My colleague or friend, uh, Derek Kilmer, a, member of, a Democratic member of Congress, has just introduced a bill, which I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of, but we've endorsed it. And it would it would provide help to a certain set of communities for, for 10 years straight. I mean, that's the other thing. We'd help communities for, oh, here's your one-time grant. Well, to really turn around, it, it's like somebody in therapy, not one session isn't enough. You know, you got to go through the whole course of treatment and Kilmer's bill would do that. So I think it's a really great idea. While we're on the theme of perhaps some of the dark sides, downsides, and concerns of innovation, because there are plenty of upsides and benefits, I do want to turn to just a few. I think Paul and I have a few questions when it comes to concerns and, and issues that have been raised by technology. The first one is facial recognition. Now, Rob, this is something that you have addressed in your own work and, and quite recently. There's been a lot of reporting from outlets like 60 Minutes of the New York Times about some very troubling implications from widespread use of facial recognition technology, especially by police departments. There are concerns that it's racially biased when it comes to law enforcement, and more broadly, that facial recognition could essentially destroy traditional notions of privacy. And those concerns are obviously not just limited to the US, although we're a US-focused program, but of course, they're even more pressing in places like China, where the government is accused of using this kind of technology to set up a 1984-esque police state in the Xinjiang region as part of their repression of the ethnic Uyghur population. Now, you appeared on another podcast recently and made a case that some of these concerns may be overblown. I would consider that to be a good news story, if true. So how concerned are you about this technology? And what's the case that maybe we don't need to worry quite so much? Well, first of all, the argument that some people make, well, some uh, non-democratic authoritarian countries might be using a particular technology in a, in a, in a harmful authoritarian way. <laughs> There's nothing we can do about that. We can press a country to do that. But to somehow say we shouldn't use technology because they're, they're using it badly, to me, doesn't make any sense. We should stop using steel because the Chinese use steel uh, steel prisons, uh, you know, for imprisoning the Uyghurs. So if they didn't have steel, they wouldn't be able to have jails, right? So come on. The issue is about how we use it. And, and, and unfortunately, there's been an enormous amount of misunderstanding and, and sometimes intentional, mostly just unintentional. And going to the issue of racial bias, absolutely, there shouldn't be any, any technology, whether it's AI, artificial intelligence, or facial recognition, which uses AI, that's racially biased. Now, people, a lot of times people will quote this NIST study, National Institute of Standards and Technology, where it was my first job out of college, graduate school was there. NIST has a program where they review, you can submit your facial recognition technology, and they'll, they'll review it and they'll test it. And one of the things they tested it on was, was, was a bias. So gender bias, race bias. And what they found of about a hundred systems that were submitted, uh, 90 of them were biased and the media went crazy. Oh my God, they're mostly biased. But they didn't acknowledge that the 10 or so were completely zero bias, no statistical bias. Those were the good systems. 
The answer then is, well, why don't we mandate that if you're a government or frankly, even a private sector, you can't buy one of these bias systems. You can only buy a non-bias system. Okay, we should do that. And, and by the way, most most governments and everything, they don't want to buy bias systems. They're not, they're not dumb, but we should, we could say that. So you can have facial recognition that's non-biased. Now the question about, well, should, should, how about the police, you know, using it for nefarious or, or bad reasons? We need rules. We need about when you can use the technology and what basis can you use it to bring a case against somebody? And the answer is never, never. Uh, we've, we had an event with, with law enforcement recently, and they said, we don't use it to bring cases. We use it as part of an investigative detective-like tool, but we have to have other evidence before we can go to court. That should be part of the rules that we bake into the system. Similar things with, with image retention. Um, you know, you shouldn't have image retention for more than, I don't know, a week or two weeks. It should, should go away. Uh, but if there'd been a crime and the police want to go back and investigate it, yeah, they can do that for a week or two. So there's a whole set of common sense rules we can and should have. But banning the technology, I think, would be, would be very, very bad. Imagine we know that there's a child predator and we know their facial image and we could have facial recognition technology identify that person a lot easier. I think a lot of people would be very, very happy to see that. So it's not about black or white. It's really, or you know, black or white meaning good or bad, yes or no. It's really about how do we implement technology with the right rules and protections. So on, on the same theme of privacy, there's uh, also concern about how data from mobile apps can be used to track people's movements, find out where people live, find out where they work, where they go, what they do. Um, and, uh, and, and there's concern that many of us are giving away information like this without even knowing about it. Is there something more we should be doing about locational tracking information regulation to prevent abuse? Is it something that we're just going to have to learn to live with if there is no more privacy. If you have a cell phone, which is pretty ubiquitous, um, they're going to, they are going to know everything about you and there's nothing you can do about it. You just got to, you better watch what you say, watch what you think, watch what you do because they are watching. Well, you know, what's funny about that to me, Paul, is early on before we had smartphones, when we had just dumb sort of 1G or 2G cell phones, they were tracking us in the sense of the way cell phone works, it's, it's called it's triangulation. So you're always within three cell towers and, and they and, and, and you have to know where your cell phone is at all times, because if you're let's say you drive to Ohio and you get a call, they need to know that your phone is in Ohio so they can route the call to you. So the cell phone companies, they know where your phone is every minute of the day. Now, do they do anything about it? No, they have their rules and laws. But if they don't have that information, we simply cannot ever make cell phone calls, uh, nor, or, nor could we use data, um, uh, you know, cell phone data to use, our, to use the Internet. So that's point number one. Point number two is um, if you look, if you use an iPhone now, you know that, that Apple came out with this new system where any app, the first time you use the app, it says, do you want to have location tracking turned on or off? Oftentimes, it's quite useful to have it turned on. Uh, it can be a valuable thing if I'm going to say, well, you know, I'm, where's a restaurant and it, it knows where I am and it can pop it up. Sometimes people say sure. Sometimes people say no. So I don't, I don't, another good advantage of location tracking is um, 
I can track, my wife can track my phone if she needs to, if I'm lost or, you know, whatever. So, you know, it's my permission. She can do it. So there's useful things of tracking. The issue is, should we or can we make sure that that's not abused? And I think there can be rules put in place. Most companies have rules, have, sorry, have privacy policies. One of the things that we do need is a national privacy law, national privacy framework that would include this kind of uh, uh, mo mobile uh, mobile privacy. We don't have a national privacy bill in the U.S., and, and it's you know due time that we have one, and it would help with that. Are there national privacy bills um, in other parts of the world? Well, there are. The problem is, it's it's one of those things where it's it's a little bit of a Goldilocks framework in a way. You you don't want one that's too hard and one that's too soft. Our argument is that the is that the European one is called the the GDPR. It's so onerous. It, it, it's reduced advertising revenue for small internet startups. It, it, if you ever go to a European website, you click in this damn cookie thing all the time. No, I don't want cookie. <laughs> Stop bothering me with that stuff. I don't want to click on the cookie notification. So we can have a very good and reasonable privacy law in the U.S. that gives people you know, the rights that they need without imposing $140, $50 billion a year, which is what the European one would do. So I think it's about finding that balance between giving people privacy protection, but at the same time enabling the innovation economy to thrive. I think one of the things that makes you a particularly thoughtful and widely lauded leader in innovation and technology is that as our listeners can tell in your last answer, you see a balance between being a bit of a, I mean this in the best possible way, an evangelist for the benefits of innovation and technology, and at the same time recognizing a robust role for government to achieve a balance. And so in that vein, I, I wanna talk about the larger role of social media and tech giants, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, unquestionably drivers of innovation unquestionably created value. I mean that in an economic sense, like we are better off in our lives in many ways because of their inventions, not to mention all the jobs and wealth that Paul alluded to at the top of the show. And look, I like feeling connected to friends through Facebook and no one I think these days can imagine doing work or school or driving somewhere or sending an email without Google. I, I, I mean, there's just, there's unquestionable value that we're getting, but Obviously, besides the issues of market power in a purely economic antitrust sense and workplace conditions, which has come up mostly in the, in the context of Amazon privacy, which we've just been talking about, I'm worried about more foundational issues about how we think, how we communicate, how we debate public policy issues. I don't think it's a coincidence that Twitter introduced the retweet button in 2009, Facebook caught up with the share button in 2012. And in the years since, our politics have gone off the rails and misinformation has run rampant on the internet with things like QAnon and vaccine information and et cetera. And so I guess my question is, as much of an optimist as you are about innovation and tech, do you have concerns? Do you think we need kind of a, a thoughtful group rethink at the government level of how we regulate tech, particularly when it comes to how we share information in a free and open society? Well, you know, Matt, that's a, you know, it's one of the central questions of the day. First of all, I, I think that the, the, the vast and, and, and troubling political divides we have, that the, the U.S. sort of, you know, the blue hates red and red hates blue, 
there's a lot more to that than just social media. Uh, social media has added fuel to that animosity, but there's a lot of other factors that have contributed to that. With regard to this technology, once we got to what's called uh, Web 2.0, in other words, the ability of somebody to put their content in there as opposed to being a passive recipient and reader, the genie's out of the bottle there. Uh, you know, what do you do? I just got an email, uh, you know, I'm totally in the middle on all this stuff, but I subscribe to every single So I got an email from Parler, you know, saying Parler's back online. Well, Parler is a, let's just say they're a much more conservative right wing, less, you know, and so you can say whatever the hell you want on Parler. And I'm sure people do. I don't know how to put the genie back in that bottle. I mean, you get rid of Facebook, something else would come up. And one of the advantages of at least the big companies is there's a little bit more of everybody in them at the same time. And so they have to try to come up with some balance. Like on TikTok, for example, you know, the, the video sharing, you got ones that are, you know, pro Black Lives Matter and anti Black Lives Matter. It's all in this one mishmash. I think rather what we need to do, we need to figure out, here's the problem. If we say to the, I mean, part of the problem is the left wants to say to the platforms, you need to take down the stuff that we don't like. Well, it's the conservative stuff they don't like. Keep our stuff up there. Uh, so we have this free speech notion, which is I'm, one of the things that I'm proud of being an American on is you can say things that you want, but at the same time, it can go too far. So I think what we need to do is Mark Zuckerberg recently said, what, tell me what you want me to do. Because Zuckerberg gets attacked for leaving too much stuff on from the Democrats, and he gets attacked for taking too much stuff down from the Republicans. And I think what we need to do is have a, a societal dialogue, you know, maybe some kind of presidential commission that Republicans and Democrats both contribute to, to come up with some generalized framework. These are the sorts of things we're going to police. This is how we're going to do it in terms of transparency and the like. Um, because I think that Platforms are, you know, at some level, they're doing the best they can, but they're going to get yelled at either way. You know, what's fascinating about what you say is I, I sometimes say that we are analog beings trapped in the digital age. Um, when I, when I uh, first went to Congress in early 2007, uh, I didn't have a smartphone. Uh, I had a BlackBerry. There was no video screen on my phone. There was just an old-fashioned, old-fashioned cell phone, and that was coming after uh, you know a car phone. I had a car phone the size of a brick in my car for a long time, and then all of a sudden, I, you know, it's two thousand and seven, and then uh, there start to be there are iPods, and then there are iPhones, and then there are iPads. And they didn't let iPads on the floor of Congress. You, you could not sit in the House of Representatives with your iPad for a long time. I remember that. And, and, and so that took, that took a while. And now uh, smartphones and iPads and the technology is ubiquitous. But as, as humans, I'm not sure that we have, you know, we can't evolve that fast. Um, we don't think it at the, at the speed of the bits and bytes of the digital world. And it can be quite, it's both uh, exciting, but it also can be overwhelming as a species to have developed these tools, which in some ways have the capacity to outstrip uh, our capacity to control and use them. So when you talk about creating a commission, um, it's an interesting thought politically. Is it something that Democrats and Republicans could ever wrap their brains around sitting down together to decide what to do 
about technology? And do we have enough insight and forethought uh, here in 2021 to create a policy that would last longer than the next model of the Apple uh, Apple MacBook Pro. Yeah, no, your Paul, your your point is a very good one, which is these things are evolving, you know, fairly quickly. I don't think government is in a position to create a, a hard and fast regulation now because things do change. But what I do think the companies are looking for is is uh, they're looking for some sort of societal guidance. What do you want us to do? And, and at one point, they, uh, they tried to, they, the n- number of them have created, a, Facebook has created an advisory commission, TikTok and some others. And, and that's all great. Um, full disclosure, I'm on the TikTok one. Uh, I think that's all great, but I think that that's, we need something more than that. And, you know, I don't know. The, the, the interesting thing, I think, is it's a little bit like net neutrality, an issue we've been involved in a lot in, in terms of can you block things on the internet? Republicans for a long time saying don't do anything. The Democrats were like, we're saying we need to regulate this like we did tele- telephony or telephones. And we were saying, well, wait, just pass a law that sort of squares the circle. And uh, the Democrats didn't want to do the law. And it's like, at some point in time, people get frustrated enough because neither side is getting what they want. And maybe we're just not there yet. But frustration can hopefully lead to some sort of ability and willingness to compromise. Well, let's talk uh, about some of the frontiers of innovation. Um, We may be on the cusp uh, of a revolution in genetic science and bioengineering due to what's called CRISPR technology, C-R-I-S-P-R. Now, you spoke a couple of years ago at a conference on the implication of artificial intelligence. And um, for a lot of people, all they know about artificial intelligence is um, is uh, what they hear um, as advertising for an artificial intelligence company that says uh, artificial intelligence on enterprise scale at incredible <laughs> speed. And we're promoting that. Nobody has any idea what they're talking about. Who knows what artificial intelligence on an enterprise scale means and especially for Ma and Pa in uh, in Bakelite uh, Middle America, who don't even have internet, artificial intelligence. But we seem to be rapidly approaching breakthroughs in areas like quantum computing. Um, is is there an area of innovation that has excited you the most that you think that ha- has the most potential for improving our economy? society, quality of life, well-being, um, and by the way, also saves the planet and uh, makes everything more affordable. Uh, and deals with the heartbreak of psoriasis. That's it. Or the agony of the agony of victory and the joy of defeat. <laughs> exactly. With the, with the guy falling on the ski lift. That's um, it. So the answer is no. But if you take out a couple of those, put four or five of them together, the answer is yes. It's a little bit like the graduate in, in plastics. I'm going to say robotics or autonomous systems. I, I really think that has an enormous promise. I'm less sort of gung-ho on artificial intelligence. I, I think AI is, is a very useful technology. But look, the reality is we're not going to have machines that are anywhere near as capable. They, they won't have consciousness. They're not going to be able to really be smart. You know, they're, they're basically just massive statistical systems that can tell you whether it's a cat or a dog. And, you know, I'm under, I'm under uh, you know, playing that. But it's still, there's too much hype in AI. Quantum, tech, quantum computing, amazing technology. 
but we're still, and we're still, we still have applications that people are using in quantum, but it, to really get breakthroughs, we're talking 10 to 20 years of big, big breakthroughs in quantum. I think robotics are a really, really important. When you mentioned earlier, I think Matt, about potentially hard work, work difficulties in, in warehouse jobs. Um, it's interesting, people complain about that. Oh, we need, we need that, uh, we need to have better conditions, but then they decry robotics as a solution. There's, there's an enormous, let me back up and say, the U.S. rate of labor productivity growth over the last 20 years has been the lowest probably in our history. And that's one reason why wage growth has been so slow. With the increased number of, of elderly people and retirees, we have to figure out a way to boost productivity if, if we're not going to impoverish either retirees or, or younger people. And robotics are a great way to do that. So I'm very gung-ho about robots. Well, I get to play the role of Cassandra on today's episode. And uh, I, I feel like I'm all Mr. Doom and Gloom here, but here goes at, all right. at, at the risk of that. All right. I'm going to ask you the flip side question of Paul's, you know, the hope and the promise and the agony of defeat question. Is there an area that you think needs to be thought through, notwithstanding Paul's point about it's so hard to skate to where the puck is going on new technology. It's so hard to understand unintended consequences. Granted, but is there an area in all the things we just rattled off or maybe things that you have in mind that maybe we need to slow down, understand the implications, have some proactive regulation? I'll give you an example. I remember very clearly a couple of UPenn researchers, must have been about 25 years ago, took out a patent on human-animal hybrids, on chimeras, because the technology existed to essentially in the lab create genetic combinations of different creatures. And they said, you know what? We don't know that anyone's on the cusp of doing this, but we're gonna take a patent out preventively because we wanna pause and think through this technology before we go down this road. And we've seen similar things on cloning other technologies. So is there a technology where you have kind of like a Frankenstein complex and you're a little worried? Well. You're you're in the ballpark because uh, you know the the nature of ITIF and my own inclination is I generally think almost every technology is is ultimately progressive uh, leads to progress leads to improvement. That's not to say that you shouldn't be having government frameworks around adoption. Those those in many cases are needed, but this is the area that I would really say we should be careful on. You know, look, we don't really know where COVID came from, but. In my opinion, it came from the Chinese lab, uh, gain of function, Chinese lab. They screwed up. They didn't have the right protocols. Now everybody in the world, you know, is, is dying. Not everybody. What could we have done about that? I, you know, at the end of the day, one of the problems with these technologies is if you could come up with a global framework, that, like, you know, the, the nuclear missile treaties that we had, those work because it was only the Russians and us, maybe two or three other countries, we, and we could verify, as Reagan said, trust and verify. Problem with a lot of these technologies, we can't trust and we can't verify, and other countries or rogue actors will do bad things. I think, you know, things like human cloning, we can have bans on that, although are the Chinese going to obey that? Who knows? But I think what we should be doing is more defensive work. And how to, how would, you know, and, and thank God that we were doing defensive work on, on mRNA. Um, and that was government funded and private sector funded. If, if we hadn't been doing that, where would we have been? But we need to really be thinking through what, how could this go wrong? And, and where should we be investing our R&D as, as preventative uh, uh, palliative measures against those mistakes or harms? But as a lightning round, it sounds to me like you're generally bullish 
on where we're going with technology and innovation in America and what it's going to do for our economy and our society over the next five or 10 years. Uh, I'm bullish, but believe it or not, I wish it was faster. Uh, you know, we, Paul, you talked about it, you know, it, it seemed fast. It has seemed fast largely because of wireless, Wi-Fi, and, and, and smart devices. But in a whole set of other areas, you know, in 2000, when the Clinton administration was in place, Congress passed a law on digital signatures. I don't know if you remember that. And it was a framework to allow them to be legally adopted. We don't have digital signatures today. Uh, Estonia has digital signatures. You know, there was a whole vision on how uh, my healthcare records could be digitized. My healthcare records aren't digitized, they're in pieces of paper. It's ridiculous. It's terrible. So I think in areas like that, in healthcare, uh, education, lots of uh, smart cities, for example, we should we could go so much farther with smart city sensors for what pollution and congestion, all this stuff. So I'm optimistic, but I think we can even do better, particularly in some of the public interest areas. Well, Rob Atkinson, thank you so much for joining us and running us through all the best of technology and innovation. For Paul Hodes, this is Matt Robeson faxing you the best of Beyond Politics <laughs> on WKXL.